0: Welcome back, my fellow creatives. Today on Story Cuppings, we're going to st- uh, take a sip from something that is not fantasy, uh, that has nothing to do with Pride Month either, uh, honestly. This is a little different. Um, I wanted to pause considering the time of June, and I wanted to read from the novel Juneteenth. By Ralph Ellison. Uh, I remember a Juneteenth quite some time ago. I even wrote about it uh, that my father helped put together in Milwaukee some uh, several years ago. And the importance of Juneteenth has not been lost on me since then. I didn't really understand it before. But I did after that and so with the 19th almost here I wanted to just take a break from first chapter reviews just for today and read from the first chapter of Juneteenth as well as the marvelous introduction uh, written by the literary executor of Ralph Ellison's estate John Callahan. We will we'll start with some excerpts from the introduction. And then we will read a portion of the first chapter of Juneteenth. So, to begin with Callahan's introduction here. Of all that Ellison wrote on his saga of a novel, Juneteenth is the narrative that best stands alone as a single self-contained volume. Like a great river, perhaps the Mississippi, For Ellison, the great highway around which the integration of values and styles was taking place, Juneteenth draws from many uniquely African-American and American tributaries. Sermons, folk tales, the blues, the dozens, the swing, and the velocity of jazz. Its form borrows from the antiphonal call-and-response pattern of the black church and the riffs and bass lines of jazz. Through its pages flow the influences of literary antecedents and ancestors, among them Twain and Faulkner, who, like Ellison, were men of the territory. Above all, perhaps, in this novel, Ellison converses with Faulkner. Juneteenth realizes Ellison's dream, articulated in brave words for a startling occasion. His acceptance speech, which when he received the National Book Award for Invisible Man in 1953, of putting into a novel, quote, the rich babble of idiomatic expression around me, a language full of imagery and rhetorical can- canniness. And to take another excerpt from the introduction. In conception and execution, Juneteenth is multifarious, multifaceted, multifocused, multi-voiced multitoned. After hearing Ellison read from the novel in the summer of 1969, James Allen McPherson brooded for many years about what he had heard and slowly came to the conclusion that, quote, "In his novel, Ellison was trying to solve the central problem of American literature. He was trying to find forms invested with enough familia- familiarity to reinvent a much broader and much more diverse world for those who take their provisional identities from groups. Finally, McPherson added what might serve as a benediction for Juneteenth. I think he was trying to Negro-Americanize the novel form. At the same time, he was attempting to move beyond, beyond it. And one last excerpt from the introduction here. On many levels, Juneteenth is a novel of liberation, literally a celebration of June 19th, 1865, the day two and a half years after the Emancipation Proclamation was decreed, when Union troops landed in Galveston, Texas, and their commanding officer told the weeping, cheering slaves that they were free. The delay, of course, is symbolic acknowledgement that liberation is the never-ending task of self, group, and nation. And that, to endure, liberation must be self-achieved and self-achieving. In his novel, Ellison, who took part in more than one Juneteenth ramble, as a boy in Oklahoma, speaks of false as well as true liberation, and of the courage required to tell the difference. And with that, let us now take a look, take a sip, as it were from the first chapter of Juneteenth by Ralph Ellison. Two days before the shooting, a chartered plane load of Southern Negroes swooped down upon the District of Columbia and attempted to see the Senator. They were all quite elderly, old ladies dressed in little white caps and white uniforms made of surplus nylon parachute material and men dressed in neat but old-fashioned black suits, wearing wide-brimmed, deep-crowned Panama hats, which, in the senator's walnut-paneled reception room now, they held with a grave ceremonial air. Solemn, uncommunicative, and quietly insistent. They were led by a huge, distinguished-looking old fellow who, on the day of the chaotic event, was to prove himself his age notwithstanding, an extraordinarily powerful man. Tall and broad and of an easy dignity, this was the Reverend A. Z. Hickman, better known, as one of the old ladies proudly informed the senator's secretary, as God's trombone. Honestly, I wasn't going to be pausing as I read this at all, but I just, I have to touch on how. In the first five words, (laughs) two days before the shooting, we already have established such an ominous foreshadowing. And the fact that we are... In a senator's office, and that this <laughs> the Reverend Hickman, or God's trombone, uh, would be able to prove himself during a chaotic event. That is definitely making us pause as to, oh no, something is something terrible is going to happen. We already know it happens because it's two days before the shooting. It's it's not two days before the attempted shooting. It This shooting occurs, whatever it is, but who gets shot? Where is it happening? Why? And we are wondering immediately about that shooting. And so we want to read ahead. We want to move forward in order to know more about what sounds like a horrible thing. So back to it. This, however, was about all they were willing to explain. Forty-four in number, the women with their fans and satchels and picnic baskets, and the men carrying new blue airline take-on bags, they listened intently while Reverend Hickman did their talking. Ma'am, Hickman said, his voice deep and resonant, as he nodded toward the door of the Senator's private office. You just tell the Senator that Hickman has arrived. When he hears who's out here, he'll know that it's important and want to see us. But I've told you that the senator isn't available, the secretary said. Just what is your business? Who are you anyway? Are you his constituents? Constituents? Suddenly the old man smiled. No, miss, he said. The senator doesn't even have anybody like us in his state. We're from down where we're among the counted, but not among the herd. very poignant way of referring. (laughs) Then why are you here, she said. What is your business? He'll tell you, ma'am, Hickman said. He'll know who we are, and all you have to do is tell him that we have arrived. The secretary, a young Mississippian, sighed. Obviously, these were the southern Negroes of a type she had known all her life, and old ones. Yet, instead of being already in herd-like movement toward the door, they were calmly waiting, as though she hadn't said a word. And now she had a suspicion that, for all their staring eyes, she actually didn't exist for them. They just stood there, now looking oddly like a delegation of Asians who had lost their interpreter along the way, and were trying to tell her something which she had no interest in hearing. Through this old man who himself did not know the language. Suddenly, they no longer seemed familiar, and a feeling of dreamlike incongruity came over her. There were so many that she could no longer see the large abstract paintings hung along the paneled wall, nor the framed facsimiles of state demo- documents which hung above a bust of Vice President Calhoun. Some of the old women were calmly plying their palm leaf fans as though in serene defiance of the droning air conditioner. Yet she could see no trace of impertinence in their eyes, nor any of the anger which the senator usually aroused in members of their group. Instead, they seemed resigned, like people embarked upon a difficult journey who were already far beyond the point of no return. Her uneasiness grew. Then she blotted out the others by focusing her eyes narrowly upon their leader. And when she spoke again, her voice took on a nervous edge. I've told you that the Senator isn't here, she said, and you must realize that he is a busy man who can only see people by appointment. We know, ma'am, Hickman said, but you don't just walk in here and expect to see him on a minute's notice. We understand that, ma'am. Hickman said, looking mildly into her eyes. His close-cut white beard tilted to one side. White head, I'm sorry. His close-cut white head tilted to one side. But this is something that developed of a sudden. Couldn't you reach him by long distance? We'd pay the charges. And I don't even have to talk, miss. You can do the talking. All you have to say is that we have arrived. I'm afraid that this is impossible, she said. The very evenness of the old man's voice made her feel uncomfortably young. And now, deciding that she had exhausted all the tried and true techniques her region had worked out, short of violence, for getting quickly rid of Negroes, the secretary lost her patience and telephoned for a guard. They left as quietly as they had appeared. The old minister waiting behind until the last had stepped into the hall then he turned and she saw his full height framed by the doorway as the others arranged themselves beyond him in the hall you're really making a mistake miss he said the senator knows us and knows you she said indignantly i've heard senator Sunrader state That the only colored he knows is the boy who shines shoes at his golf club. Oh? Hickman shook his head as the others exchanged knowing glances. Very well, ma'am. We're sorry to have caused you this trouble. It's just that it's very important that the senator know we're on the scene. So I hope you won't forget to tell him that we have arrived, because soon it might be too late. There was no threat in it. Indeed, his voice echoed the odd sadness which she thought she detected in the faces of the others just before the door blotted them from view. In the hall, they exchanged no words, moving silently behind the guard who accompanied them to the lobby. They were about to move into the street when the security-minded chief guard observed their number, stepped up, and ordered them searched. They submitted patiently, amused that anyone should consider them capable of harm, and for the first time an emotion broke the immobility of their faces. They chuckled and winked and smiled, fully aware of the comic aspect of the situation. Here they were quiet, old, and obviously religious black folk who, because they had attempted to see the man who was considered the most vehement enemy of their people in either house of Congress, were being energetically searched by uniformed security police, and they knew what the absurd outcome would be. They were found to be armed with nothing more dangerous than pieces of fried chicken and ham sandwiches, chocolate cake, and sweet potato fried pies. Some obeyed the guard's commands with exaggerated sprightliness, the old ladies giving their skirts a whirl as they turned in their flat heeled shoes. When ordered to remove his wide brimmed hat, one old man held it for the guard to look inside. Then, flipping it on the sweatband, he gave the town a tap, crown a tap, causing something to fall to the floor. Then waited with a callous palm extended as the guard bent to retrieve it. Straightening and unfolding the object, the guard saw a worn but neatly creased fifty dollar bill which he dropped open on the outstretched palm as though it were hot. They watched silently as he looked at the old man and gave a dry, harsh laugh. Then as he continued laughing, the humor slowly receded behind their eyes. Not until they were allowed to file into the street did they give further voice to their amusement. These here folks don't understand nothing, one of the old ladies said. If we had been the kind to depend on the sword instead of on the Lord, We'd been in our graves long ago. Ain't that right, Sis Arter? You said it, Sister Arter said, in the grave and done long finished molding. Let them worry. Our conscience is clear on that. Amen. On the sidewalk now, they stood around Reverend Hickman holding a hushed conference. Then in a few minutes, they disappeared in a string of taxis and the incident was thought closed. Shortly afterwards, however, they appeared mysteriously at a hotel where the senator leased a private suite and tried to see him. How they knew of the secret suite, they would not explain. Next, they appeared at the editorial offices of the newspaper, which was most critical of the senator's methods, but here, too, they were turned away. They were taken for a protest group, just one more lot of disgruntled Negroes crying for justice as though theirs were the only grievances in the world. Indeed, they received less of a hearing here than elsewhere. They weren't even questioned as to why they wished to see the senator, which was poor newspaper work to say the least, a failure of technical alertness, and, as events were soon to prove, a gross violation of press responsibility. And what events, what events will prove this? I don't know. We'd have to keep reading, but our time is almost up. Those are the first few pages of chapter one of Juneteenth by Ralph Allison. In reading that and thinking of the events in the last year, one can see how it feels like there has been a change, and yet some things never, never changed at all. It's, it's a timelessness about Ralph Ellison's words that you, you wish was not feeling timeless. You wish it was something of its period, of its day. Not yet, but Lord willing, someday. Something I say to my students a lot, and I will say it here, because I think it is so very important that we, rather than spreading the jeers, spreading the misinformation, spreading the the straw mans and the false, the falsehoods, let's be the reason that someone else smiles today instead. Let's be the reason someone is thankful they are alive today instead. Let us be the reason that someone else understands today, so that tomorrow can be a little bit better. I hope you take the time over the next few days, next few months, next few years, (laughs) to learn about Juneteenth and why it matters. Next week, we'll return to fantasy. We will return to Pride Month. Until then, read on, share on, and write on, my friends.